This is an ABC podcast. Swimming in the ocean is a very special experience. I've always loved the ocean. Uh, I've always loved the beach. But once I discovered ocean swimming, it was really about discovering this whole other dimension. And I just had this sense of feeling like, oh, wow, I thought I knew what, what the ocean was about. But boy, have I been missing out. Feel like a swim? I'm Meredith Lake, and today on Soul Search on RN, we're diving in to explore the spirituality of the sea. It's just what we all need after this long, hot summer. Ocean swimming has something otherworldly about it, doesn't it? And today, we're heading to Bondi to meet Yusra Metwali and the Swim Sisters, a group that helps Muslim women and their friends get stuck into ocean swimming. We'll also hear from Seth Carroll, a Pacific Islander whose ministry has taken shape by the beach. From coconut theology to climate change and the challenge of rising seas, even rethinking the way we use language. He's now passed, but the late Epeli Haofa strongly recommended a shift from the use of the word Pacific to Oceania. Pacific comes with a lot of baggage, you know, smallness, dependency. But Oceania, it's the ocean, it is us. Oceania defines who we are, you know. The ocean is us and we are community, we are people. And the ocean is vast and so our, our uh, possibilities are vast. They're not small, they're not limited, they're unlimited. But before we go too deep, I wonder if you've ever thought about Australia as a place shaped by the sea. So come with me to the wharves at Darling Harbour in Sydney. Hello, I'm Alex Gafferkin and I'm Head of Interpretation and Design here at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Just looking around, we can see some amazing things. I walked past a huge submarine, I think, to get here and some tall ships. Can you tell me about the ones just nearby us here on the wharf? So we're standing in front of Wharf 7, which is part of what used to be a very industrial part of, of Sydney. And from where we're standing, what we can see over there in the distance is our replica of the Endeavour, which was the um, ship that Captain Cook sailed in. To my left here is James Craig. That's another tall ship, which was, is run by Sydney Heritage Fleet. And then round the corner, you've got HMS Vampire, which is a destroyer, and the submarine HMS Onslow. And we can also see... You know, the, the rippling water of Cockle Bay, all the, the skyscrapers, the seagulls, a few tourists braving the, the heat. It's a very warm day, autumn day. Uh, so why don't we go for a walk and have a think about the spirituality of the sea? Alex, can you give us a sense of how important seafaring has been in Australian culture and history? We often think of ourselves as landlubbers, I suppose, but is it a big part of the Australian story? Well, we think so. In fact, we have a phrase that Australia was shaped by the sea. 
So that's geologically in terms of sort of the oceans forming Australia, but then also over the, the tens of thousands of years of human occupation, both humans working with the ocean and the ocean then, you know, the sea levels rising and falling. And then more recently, for example, uh, the ocean has been, or the seas have been uh, the reason why so many people have, have been able to migrate over here by boats over hundreds of years. And then we also have, for example, the Royal Australian Navy who um, work in, in peace and defending Australia. And then, of course, there's the vast amounts of trade that comes to Australia by, by ships, by boats. So really, I think, yeah, Australia has been shaped by the sea. But what about spirituality? What kind of religious ideas or meanings uh, have been associated with the sea? Well, since I've come to work here at the Australian National Maritime Museum, um, we've had a whole range of different sort of exhibitions or experiences that have a link to spirituality. I mean, more than I've ever had working in any other museum, actually. It's, it's actually quite interesting. For example, every time we open an exhibition, we have an acknowledgement to country or a welcome to country. And of course, the key thing there is that for Aboriginal people, it's not just the land, it's the waters and seas that they are custodians of as well. And they have a real spiritual connection. And we do exhibitions sometimes on that spiritual connection. For example, we had an exhibition, Gapu Monarch, which was about the um, connection of the um, Yonu people to their land and specifically to their waters and the protection that they wanted for their water. We had a, a fabulous thing in 2014 where some Varkas from uh, various South Sea Island communities came to Australia and to other places really to, to highlight, I suppose, the impact of climate change. But the whole of the front of the wharf where we're sitting now was full of South Sea Island communities singing and singing hymns, singing welcoming songs, you know, to, to greet the people as they were coming on the Varkas, on these big you know, sailing ships arriving in um, in the harbour and again we asked a local uh, Gadigal elder to come and he he went out in his canoe to welcome them in. There, there was a lot of ceremony in process. Uh, the colonists, the British colonists who arrived in the late 18th century, what was their thought about the sea or how did they understand the sea in religious terms? Well in fact um, this is actually a good point to, to bring up the story of the mission to seafarers. So back in the 1820s certainly the um, the, uh, I don't know how much connection the, the sailors had in a spiritual sense to the sea, but certainly when they turned up in Sydney, the first thing they looked for was the pubs. <laughs> so um, they really the spiritual aspects were sort of lacking, and, and that's really what inspired the, the mission to seafarers. The, the, in 1822, the rector of St Philip's Church of England, the Reverend William Cowper, he instigated the first establishment of a society really to look after the welfare of the sailors who were turning up. And the, the mission to seafarers is still, still going today. And that's because I think for sailors, they're spending a lot of time isolated, away from their families, um, away from their, their support, their communities, their churches, their mosques. And so, for example, the, the mission to seafarers has a very strong Christian ethos to help those people, both in terms of their, their religious life, but also their pastoral care. Sitting here looking at the replica of the Endeavour, I'm struck by what a, a small ship it is. You can imagine... I mean, the fear of the deep, perhaps, during a storm. I mean, it's the size of a Sydney ferry, the one that just pulled away from the wharf behind us. I read somewhere that the prayer book, the Anglican prayer book that the colonists brought with them, had in it several prayers, actually, for um, seafarers, for people who were fighting at sea in the Navy or in the midst of a storm, their life was under threat. I mean, it was obviously a very dangerous profession. So praying, you know, is, is one way to, to have, I suppose, a sense of, of, of feeling that there is hope, that there is somebody looking after you, um, that you're not alone out in the ocean. 
I myself haven't experienced Meredith. Before I came to work in museums, I worked for the British Antarctic Survey and I actually spent about six weeks travelling by boat down to Antarctica and then I lived there for two years in a, in a remote research station. Wow. And out there you are a long way from support systems, a long way. Our nearest church, for example, was in South Georgia, which was about a thousand kilometres away. And it's, it's very hard. And I've, I found at first, for example, you know, I really went, I went down really with my Christian ethos of trying to put the Gospels into practice, to love my neighbour as myself. But, you know, you are very isolated. It's a very harsh thing. And for a while there, I thought, you know, is there a God? Is there, you know, what's going on? Why, where is my faith? But then after a very dark moment, I guess, I came out of that and realised and just felt the love of God in a way that I hadn't felt before. And that experience I've read about from other people as well who've been down to that isolation, that, that moment of sort of thinking you're very alone and then suddenly feeling overwhelmed by love. And a lot of people have rediscovered their faith, found their faith through difficult times, through the isolation, both, you know, going down to Antarctica or being away at sea for, for months on end, you know. So uh, I was living down there with 16 other people. A small, a very small community, and as you can imagine, you know, small communities could fracture. They could be difficult. You know, you could have rows. There could be, uh, you know, niche groups forming. But I went down really there, you know, thinking of, of putting the gospels into practice to love my enemies, to love my neighbours, myself, to be the first to love. And these really inspired me to try and build unity, build relationships, um, and and you know, live the words of Jesus down there with my with my friends, and. I think it made a real difference to the community down there. You know, um, when people gossiped, for example, I'd say, nope, don't want to hear that, you know, or for example, it, it, helping people just to clean up after dinner, very small acts like this, you know, that they're, they're like a stone dropping into the water and those ripples spread and, and gradually people, you know, behave more neighborly to each other and love each other more, I think. So it was, um, it was a very strong experience for me and really showed me the power of, of living the gospels and putting those into practice. And perhaps that's what the chaplains involved with the, with the mission to seafarers were hoping their lives might achieve as well. Well, Alex, the museum has quite a lot of material related to the mission to the seafarers and the, the effort, if you like, to cultivate a spiritual life among seafaring people in Australian history. Can you tell me about some of your prize objects? What have you got that you think uh, really reflects this story of spirituality and the sea? Yeah, so the mission to seafarers, it's got some fabulous stuff in it. Um, for example, at the moment, um, one of the things we can look at is the, uh, a pulpit, but is in the shape of a ship's prow. So it's known as the lifeboat pulpit, and it's a beautiful wooden structure with a cross in the front in the shape of the front of a ship. It actually reminds me quite a lot of some of the um, pulpits and uh, reading sort of pulpit reading desks. reading desks in churches in Tonga that I saw um, in some of the uniting churches out there. Um, beautifully rendered this one, and um, it's a fantastic piece. It's got a lot of symbolism. It actually reminds me as well of the. Um, I mean, as the stories obviously from the gospel where Jesus was recruiting fishermen to be his disciples. And he obviously spent quite a lot of time in boats, you know, he describes in the gospels the stories of him going out and calming the seas. And, and then obviously at one point saying to the fishermen as well, you know, cast your nets on the other side, give it another go. And they trusted him. They, you know, hauled in a huge catch. Um, so there's a lot of parallels, I think, or a lot of stories between, you know, the, the gospels, between what Jesus was saying, stories in the Old Testament and, uh, and boats, boats and shipping and fishermen as well. 
a lot of our collections are quite secular, but occasionally we do have some actually quite religious items. And the one that I've got in front of me here is a pocket Bible. So it's the Holy Bible, Old and New Testaments, and it's from 1844, which was actually when the Sydney Bethel Union founded the, uh, the, the, the Mariner's Church. It's a beautiful little red velvet uh, Bible. It's got um, a beautiful brass clasp held together. And there's an uh, inscription that says, to see Nicole from her brother, Andrew. Quite what the story is, we don't know at the moment. Was it from a sailor, uh, you know, um, to his family back at home, to a loved one? We don't know, but it's a beautiful item that is now in the collections of the Maritime Museum. Alex, can I ask how the sea might figure in your personal spirituality? Um, so, I was, yeah, I was sharing a little bit there about, I suppose, my own reawakening of my spirituality and my, um, my commitment to living out the Gospels in my life uh, when I went down to Antarctica. And one of the things that I am um, also a member of a lay movement within the Catholic Church. I, I'm, I'm myself am Anglican, but I'm part of an ecumenical group called the Focolari. And one of the things that, uh, that we try to do is every month we take a line from the Gospels and really try to live it and put it into practice. So I actually looked up one of the word of life that was related to the sea. And it was from, from Luke chapter 5, if you say so, I will let out the nets. And um, again, this was the story of Jesus and the, you know, the fishermen um, in Simon's boat. They hadn't caught anything. And Jesus then says, OK, well, try again, let out your nets again. And I think, you know, for example, the meditation itself says, you know, by having faith in Jesus, by having faith in the word, if you trust or if you, if you try to love, if you put yourself out there, if you're the first to, to really give it, um, give it a go, that, you know, you will receive the hundredfold. So I suppose I find that, for example, um, particularly those stories from the Bible really inspire me in my life to put them into practice and yeah I think uh, I love the, the phrase you know uh, it's from a song isn't it I will make you fishers of men if you follow me and I, I think that's a beautiful phrase you know if you follow Jesus you can you can spread Jesus message of love and unity and compassion. Yeah. I read somewhere Alex that you play in a pirate band <laughs> uh, which sounds really fun. Do you sing pirate music sea shanties or the music of the sea yeah so we're called the mutineers and we like to think of ourselves as sydney's premier pirate band possibly sydney's only pirate band <laughs> but there we go yeah so we started a few years ago we we first started just collecting songs collecting um songs that we were interested in playing and we found ourselves for various reasons because we had a violinist and a banjo player and we started singing more and more songs that were to do with sort of folk songs but particularly shanties and there, there's a whole range of, of sea shanties a lot of them were working songs um, and it's, it's quite interesting actually because we looked up the history of a lot of, of working songs and shanties and they're actually quite a, a new thing they, they're mainly from the 19th century I guess with particularly with sailing ships and the history of shanties could, could well be that a lot of them were based on work songs sung by African-American slaves in the Americas. They themselves having a rich tradition of faith and, and, and song singing that then that came out in, their, in the works that they were doing as, as enslaved peoples out there in the plantations. So th those songs transferred to the ships, they got sung by sailors, they were often used when they were hauling things up. Um, and there's a whole range of different songs about love, loss, uh, about enemies, about, you know, there's a lot of obviously English ones, I'm English, about, you know, um, about Napoleon. Some fanta a fantastic range of, of songs. Um, and we, we, but we also sing some folk songs as well, a whole range of things. Um, 
and it's it's great fun. Um, as I said, I don't think we're going to make a million out of it, but it's, it's it's a great you know tradition to keep going. Well, lucky you have a job here at the Australian <laughs> National Maritime Museum as well, Alex. It's been wonderful to speak with you today. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your story on Soul Search. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Meredith. What should we do with a drunken sailor? What should we do with a drunken sailor? What should we do with a drunken sailor? Alex Gaffigan, once a British meteorologist in Antarctica, now head of interpretation and design at the Australian National Maritime Museum. You're listening to Soul Search with me, Meredith Lake, exploring the spirituality of the sea. Catch us on your radio, online, or subscribe to the podcast. Sephirosa Carroll grew up Methodist in a culture shaped by the sea, and her connections to Oceania have influenced her faith ever since. Now she's a Uniting Church minister and the manager of Uniting World's church partnerships in the Pacific, where the sea both nourishes and challenges religious communities and their beliefs. Well, I grew up in uh, the Pacific and specifically the island of Fiji and the western side of the big island of Fiji, which we call Vitilevu, in a town called Lotoka. Uh, my people are Rutuman, they are Polynesian, and they hail from the little island northwest of Fiji called Rutuma. Mm-hmm. You describe Lotoka as a town. What was your childhood like? Was it very urban or did you spend a lot of time swimming and enjoying the sea? Where I lived was more inland, so it wasn't really on the coast, but it didn't take long to drive, you know, to the sea. And that was really a community time. So it was time with family, it was time with friends. And we did that when we went to the sea or to the beach. Can you tell me more about your community and especially your religious community? What were your formative influences in terms of your faith? Well, I uh, grew up in, uh, well, the western side of Fiji is known as more the Indian division. So uh, we had a high Indian population. But when, where I went to school, it was very mixed. So we had Indians, we had Fijians, we had Rutumans, Chinese and other islanders. So it was a a very multicultural and also multi-religious context. I grew up in a, I would say, a traditional Christian family uh, with very traditional conservative views. But I mean, in saying that, it was still a very kind of, for me, an inclusive kind of family where uh, my father would, you know, valued us valuing other people and actually, you know, treating them as, well, as human beings like us. When you describe that religious world as a conservative Christian one, do you mean colonial in its shape or was there a a Fijian flavour? Even were there elements of traditional Fijian belief that were part of your religious upbringing? It was very colonial in in flavour. We weren't encouraged to see our our culture as being part of the Christian faith. We valued culture, but it ran parallel 
to Christian faith. And separately. So, and separately. Right. Yeah. So the culture is what you do at, say, weddings and, you know, birthdays. And so you'll you'll have the cultural things and then you'll have a prayer. That's the Christian. That's the Christian side. But to actually bring the two together or to see how each could inform the other or enrich the other, that was an encourage. So our Christian faith was very much what we had inherited from our missionaries, and it was very much a colonial legacy. As part of a faith community, even in your earlier years, you must have heard scriptural stories about the sea or involving the sea. Were there any that stood out to you as particularly memorable as a child? The one with Jesus uh, walking on water and calming the storm were two stories that that actually made a lot of sense to me, I think, growing up. And I think that was because of the context. We had a lot, you know, it's we're prone to cyclones. Uh, you've got the sea, you know. So if you, you know, walking on water is like, hey, this this is excellent. <laughs> you know, if I could do that, that's wonderful. But, yeah, particularly the calming of the storm and the walking on water were two stories that actually resonated with me a lot growing up. And Seth, baptism is usually seen as quite an important sacrament in the Christian tradition. Uh, can you tell me about your baptism? Well, my baptism was infant baptism. I grew up a Methodist. In the Methodist tradition, well, actually across the Pacific, baptism is really important. And that's why it's done at infancy. Rarely do you see an adult baptism, and adult baptisms probably followed the newer religions or newer faiths that came later. But infant baptism is so integral to a community. It's like a naming ceremony. But I have to say, you know, and confess that I probably one of these people that went on, you know, and as I cultivated my own relationship with God, with Christ, it became important to me to actually be rebaptized because it was my way of saying I own this faith. And that was actually a very significant moment because it uh, it's the symbolism of being immersed in water and and actually out of the water. And that just that was a really special moment for me. I think at that point of time it was me saying, I own this faith and I own this walk of discipleship. And from there you went on to be ordained as a minister of the word in the Uniting Church here in Australia. Can you just sketch briefly how that unfolded for you as a as a woman from the Pacific Islands? The first thing to say is that it's not usual for a Pacific Island woman to consider going into ministry. And by that I mean is we may consider it, but the opportunity to do it isn't always available. So I remember um, I was 17 at the time and I I felt um, this strong call. I mean, that, that's what we call a strong kind of inner call to the ministry. Now, at that time at 17, all I wanted to do was tell everyone about Jesus and save the world. But that turned out differently because when I started theological college, uh, the understanding of ministry and the understanding of faith began to change. I guess I realised that it is not—it's not as simple as telling everyone about Jesus <laughs> and saving the world. That there, there's you know a lot more aspects and a lot more 
parts of of ministry. But, you know, it was the start of a journey that also led me not only into ministry, but into academia, because part of it was wanting to rethink and reframe the colonial Christian legacy and to actually see it from the eyes, not only of a woman, that, so it's not just gender, but also in terms of culture. And there's also in terms of the post-colonial lens, you know, sort of seeing faith uh, from the underside, as some have called it, but to see faith differently than to the faith that I had inherited. And I guess part of it for me is realising that salvation is is more than just about individual or personal transformation. It is it is that, but it's more. It is about how we work together as community, but also how we co-create uh, in partnership with God in making this world um, the kind of place that God would have a vision for. So, so that's been the passion for me in, in ministry is to kind of see and find ways in which those things can happen, in which little transformations can make a really big difference to people and communities. We're listening to Yothu Yindi with the title mix of Gapu, or Water, from their 1993 album Freedom. It's an arrangement of a traditional Yolngu song from the Gumaj clan of northeastern Arnhem Land, expressing there a distinctive saltwater spirituality. On RN, this is Soul Search with me, Meredith Lake, and I'm speaking with Seth Carroll about the sea and her spirituality. She's rethinking the Christianity she grew up with in Fiji as a woman, as a migrant, and as someone from Oceania. And you know, in her case, such rethinking actually has a name, contextual theology. And it became a big deal during the 20th century, as the locus of world Christianity shifted from Europe and North America to the global South. And with the end of European empires in Africa, Asia and the Pacific, local Christian communities asked, what might the gospel mean here, in our culture? Well, in the 1970s, Japan answered with water buffalo theology. Indigenous Australians developed rainbow spirit theology. And in Oceania, Christian thinkers cultivated coconut theology. And I asked Seth Carroll to explain what that is. Coconut theology was pioneered by the late Sioni Aminaki Havea, uh, who's a Tongan theologian and a great leader in the Pacific. And so his reasoning behind, well, the reasoning behind contextual theology is to view the gospel from the context of the people. It's not simply substituting Christian symbols with or biblical symbols with with cultural symbols. It's really about wanting to understand the gospel from within the culture itself. So coconut theology uh, was used as a, as a metaphor because coconut trees are everywhere in the Pacific. I mean, you can't miss them. They're just there. <laughs> so it's, it's a part of everyday life. And so uh, the beauty of the coconut or the coconut tree is that every aspect of the coconut 
can be used or is used in everyday life. But in terms of the theology, how Haver used that was to actually look at the theology from a seedling that, you know, it's got to die before it becomes a coconut seedling. It grows into a tree and, you know, at the right time, the coconut will fall when it's ready. And uh, when it falls, it falls to the lowest part of, of the earth. The parallel or the metaphor here is that Jesus, through the incarnation, you know, became human, uh, lived a human life and lived a life of suffering. Uh, and at the right time, you know, through uh, death and through his resurrection, was united with God. But the other is that Every part of the tree can be used, so the leaves can be used as baskets, the flesh, uh, there's, there's drink, there's coconut juice, and there's also been, um, you know, that's been carried out through services, through the liturgy, where mm. the, um, the coconut juice and the flesh has been used as bread and, and wine. Um, so in that way, people can relate to how a common symbol that's part of their life can be related to the gospel story. Hmm. It's a way of grounding that yeah. gospel story very deeply in the, literally in the soil of yeah. a community. If the first step is developing this coconut theology that Havaya outlined, the second step involves a theology of place. Savati Tawere, a Methodist theologian from Fiji, has been a really key thinker here. Um, why is place important in a Pacific theology? Place is integral and critical in a Pacific theology simply, well, it's not simply, because um, as Pacific people, we are grounded to what we call the vanua or the fenua or the wenua, which is land. Um, but that groundedness in land doesn't just mean soil, it also encompasses the sea the ocean. So it's a interconnected relationship. Now, my ancestors would have understood that relationship very well in, and the balance um, that's needed to keep that relationship um, harmonious um, because they would have understood that if one was out of sync, it would have meant that it affected the other. So the relationship is with Vanua, which is land, the people, and the ocean, the creation. So um, because of that kind of deep connectedness to land, place becomes critical, becomes very important. The other is that in some Pacific cultures, we have what we call um, the ritual of the burying of the placenta. So when a child is born, the placenta is buried where they're born in their village, in their place. And I guess what happens is when you move across seas and you go into the diaspora, you no longer have that connection to the land or to the sea or to creation that you would have had in your home place. So where is my place? Where is my people? You know, and how do we sing a new song in this new land? In terms of the Pacific itself, it is about... Um, a disentangling from colonial legacy. We have, um, he's now passed, but the late Epeli Haofa strongly 
recommended a shift from the use of the word Pacific to Oceania. And his um, reasoning behind that was to say Pacific comes with a lot of baggage, you know, smallness, dependency. But Oceania, it's the ocean, it is us. Um, Oceania defines who we are, you know, the ocean is us and we are community, we are people. And the ocean is vast and so our our uh, possibilities are vast. They're not small. They're not limited. They're unlimited. So there you see this, this connection between the land through the ocean and people through the word Oceania. And you mentioned, Seth, the challenge of migration and maintaining a connection to place as part of a diaspora. The urgency of maintaining that connection and the difficulty of maintaining that connection, is, it's being exacerbated by the impact of climate change the places itself that people were connected to are undergoing a kind of traumatic change. And scientists have pointed out, you know, storm surges and sea level rises, all these dimensions of what's, of what's happening. In your work with oceanic communities, how do you see climate change affecting people's connections to place? It's very traumatic. Um, and I... It is, it is in the words of um, the general sec or former general secretary of the church in Tuvalu, uh, the loss of place is, a, is the literal loss of a people. Um, and for places, low-lying atolls like Kiribati and Tuvalu, they are actually already experiencing um, climate change impact. And they're already seeing that in the future, they will inevitably lose their home. So what does that mean for them as a people in terms of their identity, their culture? Um, so it is um, a big trauma. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if there's a word to describe it. Um, yeah, in my work, it's actually working with communities, working with people as they wrestle through what that might mean for them. Uh, for the people of Tuvalu, I know they don't want to leave their homes, like even if that's something that may need to happen in the future. It's not their first choice. It took me a while to figure that one out because I'm a migrant by choice. These, these uh, communities won't be migrants by choice. Such an all-encompassing challenge must have spiritual dimensions for these communities. How is this a theological issue from your point of view? It is a theological issue on a number of fronts. The first one, you know, that stares us in the face is that of justice, um, that these people who are suffering the most or bearing the brunt, the full brunt of climate change impact are the ones who've least contributed to it. Um, and I mean, that's a well-known fact. For me, it's an interesting space to be in. As an Australian citizen, I feel that I've contributed to this problem, to this issue. As a Pacific Islander, I feel very deeply uh, a connection and a responsibility to do what I can to help my people, because, you know, we're all Oceanian people. Um, so in terms of, um, yeah, that being a theological uh, issue, justice is one at the forefront for the people of Tuvalu in um, Kiribati is that they're asking the international community to live more simply so that they can buy time to actually live in their homes. The other issue is, is around questions of where is God in all of this? 
because the understanding is that we have caused this because of our sin. So therefore, God is punishing us. I guess if you stretch that, you could say, well, yeah, it is a result of sin. Um, and collaboratively, it's a result of everyone's sin because of the way we've treated creation and our God-given resources. But on the other hand, it's some who've sinned more and others are, you know, are suffering that kind of impact. So that's the, the question they're asking is, where is God in my suffering? Has God abandoned us as a people? Um, the other theological metaphor that that was very popular amongst E. Kiribati and Tuvalu was um, that the ark would come again. And um, sorry, can you just explain what that idea was? Right, that um, that God um, promised never to flood the earth again, and because of God's faithfulness, God uh, will ensure that they will be saved, and therefore something in the form of Noah's ark will come again. Now, if you go to Tuvalu, you see water on both sides of this narrow strip of island. It's only 100 metres wide. So they know that they know the reality. Yeah, so that was a theology, um, a rainbow theology, they, they called it, um, where people f- believe that God would save them. Um, it's not the belief of everyone in the community. Um, you know, the other side is rethinking the rainbow theology and Noah's Ark in a way that enables people and empowers people to engage realistically with um, climate change impact and about decisions that they need to make for their future. There are at least now three Tuvaluan theologians doing their PhDs, working on this very question, different aspects of how God is with them in this journey. The other thing I should say uh, which is exciting is the return to traditional or Indigenous knowledges, so drawing from ancient wisdom to help them navigate and negotiate the current situation. Could you give me an example of that return? Well, in the past, um, our elders knew how to navigate through using the stars. They knew how to read the weather. So things like if the breadfruit tree leaves turn brown, that could tell you the strength of the cyclone. It could be one, two or three. Um, So uh, it's actually reconnecting with nature um, and reconnecting with the kind of wisdoms that will enable them to work through their current situation and how that actually can enrich their theology that they're working on. It's emerging. It's this time of negotiating what that looks like. But I guess the breakthrough is being able, being given permission to go back and say, my culture had a lot to teach me. There's a lot of spirituality in my culture that can now be used to help us in the current time. It's a new wave of contextualising for theology in Oceania, what you're describing. Yeah. And Seth, as part of your role at Uniting World, um, you develop theological resources to help communities develop their resilience, to prepare for disasters rather than wait passively, as you said earlier. Can you talk us through how theology is relevant and useful for a community as it grapples with the impacts of climate change? It is very useful because um, it is about getting people to think differently uh, about how they 
um, engage with climate change impact, but also how they prepare for cyclones and how they prepare for emergencies. Now, why that is important is, and I I hadn't realised this myself until we did a baseline survey in four different countries and got the responses back, but something as simple as someone saying, I don't put my cyclone shutters up because it means that I don't trust God. Now, you know, I think, but that's common sense. You put shutters up because you want to, you know, protect your home, you want to be safe, but it's how how uh, being prepared can actually be understood. The theology or the reframing of theology is to actually look back at the biblical stories and the biblical texts and to say is, you know, being prepared is actually part of Christian discipleship. So the resources that I'm working on are looking at preparedness um, as a mark of resilience, preparedness as a mark of discipleship, actually saying that part of our Christian discipleship is to use our own resources, to use our God-given brains, um, and to um, actually use it in such a way, because that is part of honouring God, um, and that to be prepared is is about being uh, discerning, learning how to live responsibly in in the world. So theology becomes really important because it's about helping people to think differently about concepts that they may have inherited. And again, I, you know, this goes back to our Christian legacy. That's not useful anymore. It may have been useful at a time. But times are changing, the climate is changing. So resilience in a changing climate is about being able to read the signs of the times. Now, all these uh, phrases that I'm using are biblical. But I think, if anything, it is about enabling communities to have a a more life-affirming, life-giving way of living in a changing climate that's just um, changing too rapidly and too violently. Hmm. Seth, what hope does your theology give you for the planet and for its oceans? That's a tough one, you know, because I I think that if you're, you know, we're in the advent of the Anthropocene. We have done so much damage to creation that we, you know, really is there any hope, you know, for creation and for us. But I guess for me, my hope comes from working with um, the communities in Oceania and actually seeing the hope and the persistence that they have in terms of really trying to make a go of whatever the situation is. And for me, that demonstrates faithfulness, perseverance, and it demonstrates resilience. So I think, well, you know, if if they are hopeful, then why why then should I not be hopeful? You know, that perhaps there is a future. And I guess Faith is such that we we never really know what the future is, um, but we just we are just faithful in the time that we have to make this a better world um, for all. The Reverend Dr. Sephirosa Carroll on climate change, hope, and the transformative role of theology. She's a Uniting Church minister and the manager of Uniting World's Church Partnerships in Oceania. I'm Meredith Lake with Soul Search, exploring the spiritual dimensions of our relationship to the sea. 
Download the ABC Listen app and tune in anytime, even at the beach. Well, a desire for a better world prompted Yusra Metwali to take up ocean swimming. She's the founder of the Swim Sisters, once known as the Burkini Babes, and we caught up for an early morning dip. Today I'm here this beautiful morning at Bondi Beach. We're about to go into the water to train for an ocean swim event. It's the Bondi Blue Water Challenge. And so basically we've been doing weekly training, learning how to navigate the surf, learning how to um, enter and exit from the waves, how to swim through the rips. So it's been a really beneficial experience for us, yeah. So the Swim Sisters were formed in 2017, but it had a different name at that time, the Burkini Babes. Can you tell me why the group was created? The first thing was the fact that I was keen to get into ocean swimming and and I found that there was quite a bit to do in terms of getting myself, first of all, just improve my swimming ability. And I started noticing that there was a need to have a, a more, I guess, an inclusive space. And I thought I'd, I ended up creating that space by um, finding other friends who were swimming instructors and who were keen to also train for ocean swims. The other factor that came into play was that um, in August 2016, which is around the time that I was thinking about swimming and getting back into swimming, France had an um, attempt to ban the burkini and I saw the images of um, the police officers coming and approaching a woman on the beach and it just angered me. And I um, sort of had a moment where I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just going to start a group called Burkini Babes. And I don't think I actually meant that. I think it was just... Like, I literally wrote a status on Facebook at 2am one night. It was just, just a moment of protest. But then, as I was getting more more interested in the idea of ocean swimming, I actually found another ocean swim training group, and I it was it was based in Sutherland Shire, and I walked, walked into training in my all-black burkini, and I stood out like a sore thumb. But I also realised that I, I needed to do a lot of work in uh, improving my swimming ability, and I realised the reason being is that I had done swimming lessons in the past, but never really went out to practice. And I saw the need for, for regular training and practice. So that's when I contacted some friends who are swimming instructors and um, said, what do you guys think about, let's, let's train for an event together. And so we chose a, a shorter distance ocean swim, a 500 metre ocean swim at Maroubra. And that was our first goal to start working towards that. And that's how the group started. You can just walk through it. I did initially feel a bit of self-consciousness in going out and swimming in my burkini. I just felt like I didn't want to feel like all eyes were on me. and I didn't want to deal with that. And so that's something that I've definitely been able to move past. Were you ever told that your clothing wasn't appropriate or somehow unwelcome at a pool or at a beach? Has that ever happened to you? It was never really something explicitly told. Sometimes you, you, may, you may receive some, some stares from people at the beach who will look at you and wonder why you're wearing more clothes than, than a bikini. And, and um, so it, that, that's one aspect. The other one being maybe subconsciously, there's that experience I've had in the past when I was younger where being pulled aside at the pool and being told that I'm not wearing the right swimming material, something like that may have played into my subconscious, yeah. Our very first ocean swim that we did, the Maroubra Classic 500 metre swim event, I was quite surprised to be asked to be to be interviewed for that uh, by SBS because it was it was apparently the first time Muslim women in a burkini participated in an event, 
to see that sort of, I guess, encouragement is heartwarming. I mean, generally speaking, when you're going for an event, you may look a little bit different to the other swimmers, but if others are in a wetsuit, you can't really tell who's in a bikini and who's not. People are always very encouraging, and when they see they see that we're out there swimming, everyone's very encouraging, always positive words. So that's been really great. And I, what we really hope to achieve is that by encouraging more women from diverse backgrounds to swim, that that it's not a new story when Muslim women participate in an ocean swim, and it's just the norm, and there's nothing nothing different to see here. Can you tell me about the women in your group, in the Swim Sisters these days? Who does it include? Our group really is made up of women from all walks of life. We really tend to attract, when the group started, um, a lot of girls who were serious swimmers when they were younger basically found that this group is something that they needed in terms of having that inclusive space. Women from all walks of life, all backgrounds, wasn't just exclusive to Muslim women. And the change of name from Burkini Babe to Swim Sisters, does that reflect the female solidarity that you're describing First of all, a lot of girls in the group weren't particularly sold on the bikini babes, especially the babes part, over <laughs> the group. And um, it was about having a name that, I guess, speaks more to what the group's about. I mean, right from the beginning, it wasn't just girls who were in a bikini. It was women who were, whether they were Muslim or not Muslim, whether they wear a scarf or don't wear a scarf or in a bikini or not a bikini. So I think the bikini part was influenced by the 2am thought bubble. And so Swim Sisters was about making it, making a group that will last us into the future and definitely is more inclusive. Last year, Yusra, some of the Swim Sisters attempted a 24-hour swim at a local pool to raise money for multiple sclerosis. And it actually fell during the month of Ramadan. And so some of you were fasting while swimming. That seems incredible. What was that experience like? It was fantastic. It was a really, really fun experience. It was the second time round that we participated in the MS 24-hour swim. And it's actually a funny story how it came to be that we ended up doing it in Ramadan. And the reason being is that we were so excited and we had such a positive experience the first year round. When we received the early bird email from MS 24-hour swim, we quickly signed up. And then a few months later, I looked at my diary and I announced, I said, ladies, I hate to break it to you, but it's falling during the month of Ramadan and we are doing it. <laughs> and, and we all sort of just accepted that, you know, th- there would be a way to make it work. The Ramadan experience last year actually made it really special because we were able to, I mean, the fact that not all girls in the group are Muslim really sort of have to rely on having as many non-fasters do the Ks during the day for us. In fact, we had one of our swimming instructors, Sarah Cohen, go in and swim, and she just managed to find a former Olympian, Michael Kowalski, to get in the water and do some Ks for us as well, which was fantastic. Personally, being the night owl I am, I was happy to take the night shift and um, I had to sort of do a, a rush swim before it was time to stop eating and find time to get up and have a quick bite before the, the new fasting day began. There were ladies who were comfortable to swim while they were fasting. Technically, swimming while fasting doesn't actually break your fast, but obviously it is physical activity, so it depends on how comfortable and how confident women are to be able to go through that challenge without being able to drink water afterwards or eat afterwards. And it was really, it was a nice communal experience because we were able to actually all of us enjoy and share 
the breaking of the fast meal as well as the so the iftar and also joined together to have early morning suhoor meal which was um, just before dawn at about 4am. Very, very positive experience. We'll be participating uh, once again this year in May. Again, it's going to fall in Ramadan, but we're okay with that. We're, we're now ready to handle it and um, we're trying to get as many swimmers to join us and uh, make it our biggest team and best MS uh, 24-hour swim experience. Yusra, how does the ocean make you feel? What does it mean to you? The ocean is really a place where it means home to me. Wherever I go, I always feel at home when I'm near the sea. I feel grounded. In terms of like actual ocean swimming, I particularly really love just being immersed in salt water. I find it the most, I guess it's the most natural way of just connecting to nature and just the sense of invigoration that you get out of it, sense of recharge, like the water always recharges me, but particularly particularly the ocean, particularly the ocean, it's that special salt water feeling that you just can't, you can't put a price on it. Whether it's going for laps or just having a, a quick dunk in, and for that reason, I always now have my swimming swimming costumes in the in the boot of my car, just so that I'm always ready for that. <laughs> and I wonder if when you dive into the ocean, whether there's any kind of sense of performing an ablution of sorts. It's definitely an interesting way to put it because um, being a Muslim and the need to to perform your prayers requires you to perform ablution and, and and wash your body. And definitely, there's that sense that getting into the water is is that cleansing experience, both physically and spiritually. Does the ocean affect your own spirituality in terms of perhaps getting a sense of God's creation or the sheer force of nature? What does swimming in the ocean mean to you spiritually? Swimming in the ocean is is definitely, I'd call it a spiritual experience. First of all, it's, it is very meditative, being in the water. Even though we do it as a group, even though we swim as a group, when you're, when you're swimming in the water and in the ocean, you're, you are solo while your head is down. And there is this sense of gratitude in the ocean, especially about just really the, that other dimension in the ocean, which if you're just sitting and looking at the beach, you don't, you don't really get to experience that. But being in the ocean and being amongst fish and um, other organisms and seaweed and coral, all that is very, very much grounding and definitely feel a strong connection to God's creation. And for me, that's the most spiritual thing you can do in terms of, you know, connecting to nature and and being with nature. Well, how about we go for a swim then, Yusra? Thanks for speaking to me this morning. Thanks. I look forward to it. (laughs) Well, at the end of this long, hot summer, perhaps you're feeling thankful for the sea to swim in, like Yusra Metwali from the Swim Sisters. Or perhaps like my guest, Seth Carroll, you're worried about climate change in the age of the Anthropocene. Or maybe you're curious about the coconut theology emerging from Oceania. On Soul Search today, we've been exploring the spirituality of the sea. And you can take another listen on the Soul Search website or via the ABC Listen app. If you're enjoying the show, why not subscribe to the podcast or even leave a review? Thanks to producers Jeff Wood and Mariam Shahab. And I'm Meredith Lake. I hope to catch you next time for Soul Search where we're talking captivity and freedom with a Buddhist prison chaplain and an Iraqi Christian. Join me then for more real-life religion and spirituality here on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.